Good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. Um, when I was, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. And when I was in college, went to college in Chicago, uh, we would save our pennies and we get with a, a, a group of guys and we go to this place called the Prime Quarter. And the Prime Quarter was a steakhouse that was worthy of all of our pennies. And uh, I actually took my wife to this steakhouse a year later because the whole gimmick of this steakhouse is you get to choose and grill your own steaks. Had this giant grill. And I took my wife to this place years later thinking it would be a wonderful date. And she said very nicely to me, why would I want to pay to cook my own food? <laughs> Not as worth the pennies on that one. But we would go to this place and they had a uh, food challenge. And the food challenge was that you had 75 minutes to eat a full baked potato, a full salad from the salad bar, a big thick piece of Texas toast, and a 40-ounce steak called the Beef Eater. They gave you 75 minutes to complete this challenge, and if you did it, you could eat for free. My buddy, Mike Luciano, came, took on this challenge, and finished the challenge Full salad, baked potato, big piece of Texas toast, and a 40-ounce steak. He finished it in 15 minutes. <laughs> you ever want to be proud of your own species? It was that moment where I just felt like, you know what, we all win. And, and Mike Luciano, who's this uh, guy from, uh, Italian from New York, he would then, he got an apron as a part of this that said the beef eater. He would literally walk around the floor going, I'm the beef eater, I'm the beef eater. And in our hearts, we all said the same thing. All hail, the beef eater. <laughs> Something special. We're introing a new series this morning uh, calling, uh, I don't know if we have the graphic or not, but it's calling every story his name. It's, we're going to carry this through the summer. This series is going to be looking at mostly relatively obscure figures in the Old and New Testament, stories that maybe we're familiar with but haven't heard for a while, or maybe some names or stories that we aren't familiar with at all. And so we're going to have different people come and share from different stories of the narrative. And this morning, we're going to give the introduction to that. And, and my job this morning is to give you the structure on which to hang each of these upcoming sermons, each of these next episodes in Scripture. And in short, what we're doing is recalling that the Scripture is ultimately directing us to one place, that regardless of each individual episode, we're going one place. And so for this morning, we are literally going to be talking about the entire Bible. So if you have your Bibles, where I want you to open up, or you have an iPhone app or whatever, open up to the table of contents, which is good. Some of you are like, I always have to open up to there anyway. Um, table of contents. So I want, we're going to be going through the scripture in macro form and then letting that inform how we uh, then look at individual stories in the days and weeks up ahead. Won't you pray with me? God, we each walk in uh, with our own story, our own lives. We walk in as a people believing that you're doing something in us. We walk in, as, as Pastor Mike said, with, with burdened hearts, hopeful hearts, desperately needing you specifically in this season of church life. 
And we, as a part of our story, want to learn from something so much bigger. Thank you for who you are and how you have chronicled yourself in this book. In Jesus' name, amen. So this book, it's a big one, right? Some of you have read it all the way through, some of you several times. Some of you have tried to read it all the way through, got to Leviticus and started over many times. But the book, this book, this scripture that we have, these 66 books, um, what is it exactly? It's translated into over 2,900 different languages. It is, uh, it is um, been printed and reproduced over 6 billion times. By far the most read and distributed piece of literature in the history of the world. But what is, in basic form, what is the scripture? I believe the Bible is not first an instruction manual of best practices, how you're supposed to live The Bible is not a personal, isn't first a personal love letter to you, just written to you or to me. It's not a book of rules or manners of of what you're supposed to do or law and how to live. The Bible foundationally is one story. It's one story divided into lots of stories, but ultimately every part of this story, every person in this story, every chapter and verse in these books is pushing forward one macro narrative. And in this story, we see a six-act drama, a six-act drama, and we're going to walk through those quickly this morning. You've got notes if you'd like to do them that way, and then we'll take a look at what does this six-act drama mean for each of the individual episodes or stories within it. Number one, the scripture starts out with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For God comes and, he's, and he d- d- desires in his incredible will for his own pleasure and glory. He says, I'm going to create as an extension of myself. He creates dimensions. God is outside of dimension, but he creates the dimension of time and space. He creates stuff. He creates light. He creates planets and stars. He creates life. He creates creatures. He creates ecosystems. And he's going and he's spreading. In the beginning of Genesis is talking about this, and it says This, over and over, God created and he saw that it was good. He said, this is good. I nailed it, right? So he creates, he says, this all, and it's working in complete function. The word that we have throughout the Old Testament is this beautiful word, shalom. Shalom meaning peace or wholeness. This word means much more than the absence of conflict. It is the full presence of of joy, of contentment, of rest, of love. It is everything made right, everything as it was intended to be. Shalom is what the creature and the creation were made for, what the dimensions, what life is ultimately made for. Everything operating in perfect union, operating together in full joy, and purpose. That is this picture of creation. It is good. It is shalom. It is everything functioning perfectly as it ought. Then God creates order, and he establishes order, and then on the, on the final day of creation, he takes some dust of the ground, and he creates his Mona Lisa. What he says is, this is my finest creation, and this creation he places over all other creations that he has made. He says, this creation I'm going to make in my own image. 
and he creates people in his own image. What is his image that he puts in them so particularly? He puts in them the ability to love, the ability to have relationship as reflected of who God is. Unlike anything else, he has made, and he has made everything operating together in complete harmony and order. Act 2 takes us all the way to part of chapter 2. We have this beautiful harmony, this beautiful image of what it's like. Then we have this separation, sin, death enters the world. Um, what was together is now separated. In Adam, all is torn apart. And I'm not going to go through the whole, everything that happens in that creation account, but, or that um, Adam and Eve sin account. But basically what happens is the four great relationships are torn. The four things that were in perfect harmony and shalom are now separated. First, there's separation from God. Right in the chapter after Adam and Eve make a mistake, God comes down and he's like, where are you guys? Like he didn't know. And Adam said, I was afraid, so I hid. There was this sense of no longer were God and man in perfect union, but they're separated. There's a separation from each other. Immediately Adam's like, no, it's more her fault. And she's like, I think this snake thing. Like there's blaming, right? There's, there's a sense of brokenness in the community with each other, conflict, competing egos, self-interest, this thought of, of trying to get one for there's not enough out there, so I got to get mine. There's also separation from self. This is the beginning. One of the most powerful things in the, in the early account of Adam and Eve is the presence of shame. Immediately after sin is the sense of shame. Before my eyes weren't obsessed with me, I could live in perfect harmony. Now the eyes turn inward and there's this sense of hiding Shame, insecurity, trying to feel good about me, whether living in self-worship or pride or self-rejection, which is its own form of pride, self-obsession and worry. We have a broken relationship with ourselves starting from this moment. Third, fourth great relationship is the separation from creation. And this is detailed in, in uh Genesis chapter 3, of now it's going to be hard to work the land. Now it's a lot easier to grow weeds instead of flowers. Now you can't snuggle with a honey badger. Like, there is a separation. No longer do things work in perfect unity, but now we have um, all kinds of fighting and uh, difficulty in the earth. The four great relationships are separated. This is so important for the whole narrative of Scripture because in Genesis 3.15, we are given our earliest image of what the whole Scripture is going to be about. So here's the Bible in 21 words and one hyphen is this. The Bible is God's imaginative, relentless, love-fueled pursuit to keep his promise and redeem his people, and to make his creation whole again. It's God's plan to get his people back. That which was all separated is the plan to then bring it back together. That is the narrative. That is the story. And so each portion of the Bible is reinforcing and reminding and recalling us to that one great story. Genesis is the picture of wholeness. Genesis 1 is the picture of God-created wholeness. Genesis 2 is broken apart. By Genesis 3.15, we have this scripture, this narrative, this story 
is one long story to get his people back, to reunite his people. Okay, then we've got the Old Testament, which is a lot of books. And we're not going to walk through them in as much detail because we're only at Genesis 3.15 right now, and we all know how that would take. So the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to put in one act here, and that's called God's relationship with the nation of Israel. This is from Genesis 12 till the end of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. This time period, if you open up and you read a Bible verse, it is talking about God's relationship with the nation of Israel. Yes, there are some inclusions, in particular the book of Ruth, where it's not only talking about God's relationship with Israel, but almost everything that you read in the Old Testament is directly God dealing with his people, the nation of Israel what happens is God comes to a guy named Abram, right, in Genesis 12, and he says, Abram, I want you to go come outside with me and look at all the stars. And Abram walks outside, and, and God says, I want you to count them. And he says, God, I'm not in New Jersey. There's more than seven stars up there, right? He said, well, the point is that it's boundless, it's endless, and that is so much a part of my character, and it's going to be a part of this covenant that I'm making this promise. And by Gen in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis 15, God establishes this covenant. And I don't want to lose you here, but real quick, the way he establishes his covenant is he does it according to the time periods of the day, which they would take animals, they'd be divided in half and put on either side of an aisle. And what would happen is if when you make a covenant, you would walk through with a person and you would look at the dead animals on either side as if to say, this is not an ordinary promise. This is not just a paperwork I can get out of. This covenant that I am making is so sacred, so valuable, that if I break it, I will die. And the person on the right sees the other half of the dead animal and of the animals, and they are establishing, again, this covenant is of such sacred value. To break it means death. So you have a few things that are promised, are covenanted by God here. First is there's going to be a land, veggie tales, I'm going to the promised land. So much of your Old Testament is in journey to, in occupation of, being kicked out and coming back in to the promised land. The land of Canaan is a major feature in the Old Testament, this promised land. There's also a promised provision for sin. There's a sense of that sin will be taken care of. Now, the fascinating thing about the covenant that God made with Abram about going through and walking through and seeing the dead animals on either side, right before God and Abram were going to walk through in Genesis 15, it says God pushed Abraham aside, pushed Abram aside, and God walked through alone. It's like, okay, God walked through alone as if to say, Abram, if I break this covenant, I, God, will have to die. But also, if you break this covenant, I, God, will have to die. Your death is not on the line here. This covenant is all on me. There's a last hook in the covenant given to uh, Abram. It says, and through you all nations will be blessed. The rest of your Old Testament is the living out of God's faithfulness and fidelity in that covenant. God's relentless, continued pursuit of his people. 
We see in the beginning uh, improbable Genesis, right? And that's the whole book of Genesis of how over four times there, there's, or four times there are the, the nation of Israel and its fledgling little thing from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12 sons and the tribes are almost extinct by famine, by various things. They're almost killed, but God preserves. God preserves. And there's a statement that says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And this is God saying, I have sustained the nation from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob. And in Genesis, what's happening is it goes from a man to a nation. Then you have the historic Exodus, which is the book of Exodus. And then through the next few books of the scriptures, telling the story of, of the 10 plagues, of telling the story of getting out of Egypt after being enslaved for 400 years, God sends a deliverer, a redeemer coming get out of there, then they're going to the promised land, 40 years in the desert, all kinds of things going on. Among the things going on is they get the law. Now we're in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? And uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy give them this way that the people can live, the way to live this out. A few things about the law is a whole tribe of this nation of Israel, the tribe of Levi, are becoming priests, and the priests would be the representatives of the people to God and of God to the people. And through this time, there's like really complicated and layered and legal law stuff about sacrificial system, about, about this type of sin gets this, and, and the nation of Israel continually is covenant breaking, dumping sin in, and there's a temporary dumping sin out through various sacrificial provisions given by the God who said, if you break it, and when they did, said that ultimately death might happen, must happen, and ultimately the death must be God's. Once you get to Joshua and Judges, I'll get through the Old Testament, we'll get there. Joshua and Judges, we get through First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, you're, um, you're in the promised land, Joshua, you know, like they're going Jericho seven times and marched through. They're now in the promised land, then you've got a period of the Judges, and then eventually you get to the fact, which a lot of the Old Testament is, is in the, the time of the kings, right? And the nation of Israel is looking around, they're like, man, Assyria's got a king, I kind of like that, you know, and like these other people have got kings, and we got this weird cloud thing, and we love God, but we kind of want something we can touch, you know, kind of like the golden calf. We kind of want, but maybe this person could be living. We want a God we can, or someone we can touch that will lead us, and they chose Saul as the first king because he's super tall, which has just got to be the worst qualification for, like, who's the tallest? Make that guy king. But anyway, so in these kings, there's like 40 kings, and, and most of them are, are various levels of taking the nation away. And that through the leadership of the kings, the, the nation of Israel is mostly traveling away from God. And there are different levels, right? There's like, don't let that person date your sister, did evil in the lives of the Lord, and then like some really nasty, scary, creepy stuff happening with different kings. But there's basically different levels of walking away. And then there's nine and a half, depending on what you do with Solomon, kings that are actually righteous, do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And through the kings, through that leader, the nation of Israel is brought back nearer to God from separation back towards union. One of the kings that we're going to look at that was part of that, we're going to be studying next week in particular. During this time of kings, a lot of poetry is written. 
You know, maybe that's the second qualification for a king. Be tall, write poetry. But David wrote a lot of poetry during this time. Psalms, Proverbs, Solomon's writing, Ecclesiastes, other Psalms. And a lot of your, about five books of your Old Testament is written during this time, mostly by kings representing their story and what they believe about God. Then we have the prophets. And the prophets are the one, if you're less familiar with Scripture, they're the little names you're seeing here from like Isaiah all the way down to Malachi. And in there, there's a lot of names that you're like, I am not brave enough to try to pronounce that out loud. But these people had these prophets, had two jobs, foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is telling the future, God giving them a vision. This is what's going to happen. Tell people about the future. But probably more often than not is foretelling. Tell people what God says now. And that's the office of the prophet, to tell people what God wants now as well as to point ahead till a time that would come. Something to know about kings, something to know about priests, something to know about prophets. They never lasted. They did their time, they put their episode in, but eventually they came and they left and the nation rose and fell often according to them, the very temporary uh, solutions. This brings us to the New Testament. And the New Testament, you know, you think, man, how does, how's God going to start the New Testament? God starts the New Testament like this. There was David who had a son so-and-so. Then there was so-and-so who had a son so-and-so, right? It's all genealogies. Matthew 1, check it out. Long genealogy. Then you get all the way to Luke, another long genealogy, telling the story. Why? Because it's so important to remember what we're dealing with in Scripture is not the old stuff and the new stuff. It's, it's not the, the prequel and this. It is one story. And the authors are so intentional from the beginning of the New Testament saying this is not a new story. This is the same exact story, that what's happening here is one long micro-narrative of a God in his relentless, love-fueled pursuit of his people, and they're reestablishing the timeline of the story. That's how the New Testament begins. Well, they begins with telling of the coming of this Christ, this Messiah. A few things that are highlighted. One is his otherness. Right, his perfection. Yes, there's another creature that has been made, another person that's been made, that's confined now to dimension, that's d dependent on, on stuff and food. And in the ecosystem, there's this person, Jesus, but his otherness is made plain in Scripture, his perfection, his deity, the way he talked about himself throughout the book of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I can give you water that you will never thirst again, declaring himself the Messiah. The way he came, his method, he cared for the sick, for the poor. He knew his people. He fought against misogyny, touched the lepers, ate with known sinners, and lived among the poor. His way was not one upwards towards the throne, but one down towards servanthood. He came as an old covenant fulfillment. He did not come to tear up the old covenant. He came to fulfill the old covenant. The, the story that we have in Scripture is not tried out the old one for a little while, then let's go with this new one, which sounds way better. What it is is this old one is always pointing forward. So the, what he says in Matthew, he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. 
And he ultimately comes to fulfill them, promising way back to Genesis 12 that if this covenant is broken, God would have to die. And the story of Christ is him coming to fulfill his promise by ultimately, as God, dying. That old covenant fulfillment also began a new relationship, a new installment of his covenant, an extension of the old that is different. While the old covenant uh, had, the, had a land, a promised land of God, the new covenant has this uh, kingdom of God. This, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The, the relationship through the old covenant was uh, through the leadership, through priests and those kind of things. Also some through prayer and, and through the temple, God's presence in the temple. Now in the new covenant, Peter says every believer is a priest. Every believer with direct access to God. The provision for sin in the old covenant is the sacrifices and ultimately pointing to the provision for sin. The provision for the covenant breaking was the death of God. And then ultimately, the new covenant is based on the death of God, but it's really pushed forward, 1 Corinthians 15, by the life of God. The greatest thing about living in the new covenant is that Jesus is not dead now. This is the with God life that are now given to all of his people. Okay, that's why I wanted to intro. I want to take you real quick as we finish to Luke 24. Luke 24 uh, is the Emmaus Road. And uh, after Jesus has died, is risen again, there's two guys walking the seven-mile dusty walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're walking down, kicking rocks, and they're talking about this Jesus guy, and the followers said he rose again, and they're trying to make sense. They say, who is this prophet, da-da-da, and Jesus comes and walks with them. They don't know it's Jesus, and they're like, have you not heard of this Jesus stuff going on? And he's like, oh, tell me about it. And then Jesus goes, and it says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, this is in Luke 24, 27, what was said in all of the scripture concerning himself. We don't have too much time to go into this here, but basically, Jesus gives the director's version of the whole story again. This is going to be repeated in Acts 2, in Acts 7, all over the book of Hebrews, and throughout various places in the, Paul does this a million times in the book of Romans, is connecting the story that this is all one story and what's the story? It's the story that ultimately Jesus Christ is the creator, that God took aim, that the Holy Spirit deeply involved. But in Colossians 1, it says Jesus Christ was the agent of creation. He's not only the creator, but he's the prophesied one. The prophecies that the prophets were giving, over 300 of them are given in direct relationship to the coming of Christ. There's a day, they're saying, where that which is separated will be joined again he is also the great prophet, called that many times, foretelling and forthtelling the very words of the Father. He comes as the king. Pilate got this right when he put king. He came in his entrance. You can see this right from as he enters Jerusalem. He comes as the king on a downward way. And he is the great high priest who finally finishes the work, right? In the Old Testament, high priest could never sit down. Work was never finished. And it says in Hebrews, the new high priest came, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because this leader was not temporary. This leader was not looking forward to something. This leader was not pointing to anything. This was the prophet, priest, king, prophesied one, 
coming as God to die to change everything. That story is intimately connected to every story that we see before and after it in Scripture. It is all about Christ. He is the meta narrative. He is the theme. He is the thread that ties all of it together. It is, it is not first a book about uh, concepts or, or about, uh, it's a, just a story of Christ, that this one long story of Christ coming and the God who is at war for his people. In the rest of the uh, New Testament, Act 5, we see the kingdom of God lived out among his people. And, and basically, the way the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is, it's the with God life. It's the presence of Christ um, among his people. It's where he is Lord. Uh, and what does it look like? Well, very simply, what it looks like is you take those four broken relationships that happened way back in the garden. And you take those four broken relationships of separation that is what the kingdom is. It is the bringing of them back to union, where there was separation with God, separation with each other, separation with self, separation from creation. It is the restoring of those things from separation back to, uh, back to union, this, the very story of Scripture and the very story of what the church should look like is found in Eden. It's not a place of competition, but compassion it's not a place of separation, but community. It's not a place where uh, we're fighting to get ahead or get known. It's a place where we're a part of something so much more big and beautiful and whole. Shalom. This is the restoration of God being lived out right now in the church. Up until Revelation, that's Acts 5 and then Acts 6. I mean, Act 6. Uh, we have the book of Revelation giving future promises of a reality yet to come. Um, but that's kind of the big story, right? And what I just want to conclude is saying, and I know this is like, whoa, thank you for throwing the whole Bible at me today. But within that, it's so important that we remember the bigness of the story because when we focus in on Mordecai or when we focus in on Jabez or we focus in on Stephen and these different things, our tendency is going to go narrow but the importance is to remember this is all a part of something big. Four things for you real quickly about each of these episodes that we will look at in upcoming weeks. First, every episode pushes forward the larger story. Each portion pushes forward the larger narrative. Every chapter of how God works is showing something bigger it's so important. This is why viewing episodes in our own life as well as these individual episodes, it's so important to remember the word temporary. Why? Because a lot of portions of Scripture, a lot of portions of our lives are really dark. And when the present story is dark, to remember that this is a part of a longer redemptive story. This helps us in moments when things are difficult, in seasons of depression, in broken relationships, to remember that the story is a lot bigger and a lot longer than what I presently feel. Secondly, he is the hero of every part of the story, not just the whole. Okay, this is a way we want to teach our kids how to follow God in the Bible. There once was this boy, David, and he is a hero of the faith. And this hero of the faith came and he trusted God and he found these five rocks and he went and he threw them at a giant. The giant got hit and went down. If you trust God like David, then you can be a hero of the faith too. 
Never ever do that. Because that's not, David's not the hero of the story. And we're not the hero of the story, right? So when we look at these stories and episodes, what we're looking for is not how to become like these broken people, but how to know the God that used them. So that the story is that God, so mighty, imaginative, and incredible, out of his love, used a little kid and five little rocks to slay a giant, to ultimately free a nation. How cool is God? But our pointing is not to pointing to people, be like them, be like them. Why? Because that creates a narcissistic, how good am I? How much am I? What should I do? What we want to be teaching generations is to look upward to a God that is the great hero of the story, past and present. Third, every episode in the past teaches us about the future um, the, the story of Exodus is repeated all over, Old Testament, New Testament. Psalms, they talk about it. They talk about the Red Sea and Pharaoh and all that stuff. Romans talks about it. Over and over, stories are repeated. It's like, God, if you want to give us a book, why are you repeating? Like, this book is relatively small compared to what you could write. Why are you repeating stories? Because continually, this happens in, in Joshua 4 as well. When God does something... It's worth repeating and remembering because it is in view of the past that we learn the future. The reason we do this series is to look at individuals where God has moved in the past, believing he can do it in the future. And lastly, every episode teaches us a unique aspect of God's love. David says this. He says, if I go to the highest heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your hand will hold me fast. How does David know that? Will you look through the Psalms? Because David lived in every one of those spots. David lived when it was good and when it was bad and when it was despairing and when it was incredibly dark. And it was only through living through there and realizing, wow, God can be here too that he learned the miracle of God's presence and God's care is everywhere. Each episode, whether seemingly good or seemingly bad, teaches us something unique and beautiful about God's presence. Okay. Stand up, would you? I'm just going to read a little blessing over you, and I know this is the, the big context on which we want to hang other things, but just want to give you a blessing as you go this morning. Very simply, may you enjoy our hero, Jesus Christ, as he fights for you, is present in your pain, as he is brave in your fear, as he is healing in your brokenness, as he is light in your dark, that he may be the hero that alone was, is, and is to come. And it's in that great name we all find our part. You are dismissed. <laughs>